Kiss Army. You wanted the best, you got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcast. Hello and welcome to your podcast. This is Gary Schaller and with me is my good buddy James Hager. It's good to be here because we've got something planned for tonight that we've been asked about quite a bit and we said we would, and now we're gonna. This is, I don't, I don't want to say it's the Elder Show, but it is an Elder Show. We haven't done one yet. We've been doing this since 2007, and uh, I imagine there'll be more Elder to talk about later on in the podcast. Some other recordings will surface, or we'll have an anniversary, or a special guest. A reason to talk about what I think is a great underrated record. But this is our first stab at looking at this album. It's been 30 years since the Elder came out. And it's uh, well worth the time and attention, I think, but that's my opinion, and we'll get around to that a little later. What I'd like to do is introduce some of the guests we have tonight. Joe Casey, who's no stranger to the podcast, why don't you uh, introduce yourself, Joe? I'm back to make history. There we go. And Joe Casey, to those who are not in the know, Joe Casey is the man who wrote some of the, uh, let's see, the early 2000s Kiss comic book that was on Dark Horse Comics. And he's also the co-creator of the very successful Ben 10 and Generator Rex uh, animated series. If you don't know about these, check them out on Cartoon Network. And we've also got Julian Gill, who, for online KISS fans, he should be no stranger. He is the webmaster, the creator, the host of KISS FAQ, or KISS Fact, depending on what you like to call it. He's the author of many great books about KISS. And his website, KISSFAQ.com is the place to be to learn everything you need to know about KISS. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks a lot. Okay, good to have you guys. So we are talking about a record that I don't want to even say it's controversial because I think for something to be controversial, it has to be a blip on the radar. I would yeah. agree with that. Right? I mean, absolutely. The, the, the controversy really around this record is um, why do people dislike it so much? Uh-huh. I, I don't know. I, I, I tend to think of it as a very good album, um, but you know, that's, I guess that's just one guy talking. Um, well, it really, it, it catches people off guard. For example, um, tonight before we were doing this recording, um, I decided I needed to listen to the elder, you know, just to kind of, you know, make sure I was fresh on everything and whatever. And so I put the album on, um, through my laptop, through a PA system in my living room and, um, I had some guests over and they were just flabbergasted that this was Kiss. A- absolutely just flabbergasted yeah. that that's who this was. And I don't think a lot of times people don't listen with their ears or their, you know, they don't listen to the record itself. They listen to what the record's supposed to be. Right. And what they think a Kiss record should sound like. Unfortunately, I think Kiss were flabbergasted that it was Kiss. <laughs> absolutely. To, to this day. Right. The legend of the elder. Conceived, written, and performed by Kiss on Casablanca Records. The new Kiss album, Music from the Elder. Available at Listening Booth, 5 on LP. 
And they just are so harsh about it, too. I mean, uh, the com the commentary track on, uh, I guess it's Kissology Volume 2. I think the, there's some comment. I don't know. Julian, do you remember exactly what it is? Something about uh, the hospital. It's like uh, anyone who likes this record needs to go to the hospital. No, it, it, Paul says something like uh, they still um, – people still send him emails or letters saying to play the Elder in its entirety, and – he always sends them a letter back to the hospital wishing them well. Oh, God. <laughs> Funny line, and, though. I mean, yeah. And he's never been afraid to use one of his favorite sound bites on that, is, uh, that it's a very good album. It's just not a very good Kiss album. All right, so what do we think about that? I mean, is everyone in agreement about that? No. Um, the Elder, is, it's a great record. I absolutely love The Elder. I, I have the benefit of hindsight. You know, when I became a fan, The Elder was, you know... 15 years old or older you know so it was always a part of kiss for me it was always part of the kiss package right was the elder so it, it never until people started telling me that the elder was an odd album it never really struck me as an odd album yeah it just struck me i mean it was different i definitely knew it was different but it was just cool i mean i didn't know that it wasn't supposed to be a kiss album if that makes sense i didn't know yes. that this was the dark horse yeah, that abs that absolutely didn't make sense. Yeah, and, and and so we have a no from James, and no that it's. In, in other words, you're saying it, it it is a Kiss record, Joe. It was an immediate no from you. You're saying yeah. It, yeah. Go ahead. This is a Kiss record if you really listen to it and you you know the band, you know their catalog. I mean, there's, you know, because not not just because of Bob Ezrin, but there's a lot of Destroyer in this record. There's a lot of Gene's solo album in this record. There's a lot. I mean, there's just a lot of. Kiss pedigree that made it into this record. This is totally a Kiss album. You know, you can't. It's unmistakably a Kiss album if you know the band well enough. Right. Agreed. A song like "Great Expectations" from Destroy here is not unlike what you hear on the on the Elder. Right. It's. I mean, they were doing this stuff. You know, six seven years before the Elder, it just didn't get the attention that the Elder got because it wasn't an entire record of it. Well, Julian, what do you think? <clears throat> I think it's a very good Bob Ezrin record. <laughs> that takes a lot of elements of Kiss. I mean, there's certain certainly truth to stuff like about Great Expectations, but you look back a few years and they would have been murdered for putting Just a Boy on Destroyer. Absolutely. Yeah. I well, would actually say it's a worse Bob Ezrin record than it is a Kiss record. I mean, Bob Ezrin, you know, I mean, not to get into the gossip, but he's admitted it, that he was probably not at his best when he did this record. And it shows, you know. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's still very nicely produced. It may be completely out of left field um, and delusional. Uh, there's some nice elements in it, but uh, do they work within the context of Kiss? In some cases, they get away with it on the record, and in other cases, um, definitely not. You know, the it's Bob, the Bob Ezrin aspect of it to me, the record could have. It doesn't sound very big. That's always been my problem with this record, is this for what its ambitions are, production-wise, it's just a very... It's, I mean, it's of its time, but from Bob Ezrin coming off the wall, which is this epic record, and sounds epic even now, this record just sounds... It just doesn't have the, the, the scope, just sonically, that... The material, I think, tries to go for, you know, certainly the concept tries to go for, but just from a purely production point of view, I think it's, you know, even in hindsight, it's just, it's weaker 
than some of the songs deserve. Well, it's almost like that Bob Ezrin was trying to recapture, in a way, with Kiss what he did with The Wall. And the, the Kiss is at Pink Floyd. The production can't be the same kind of deal. Yeah, they're they're a different band. It's different, different personalities, different music, and the production really suffers from him trying to recapture what he had done before. I'm going to be the dissenting voice here, and uh, you know we're talking about my two very favorite bands. Pink Floyd is second by a hair to uh, to Kiss in terms of being a favorite for me, and the the thing I'm going to say is that. I think the wall, which is a wonderful record that I, I love dearly, is one phenomenal. of yeah phenomenal record is one of Pink Floyd's smallest sounding albums, and I say that because when you put on Dark Side of the Moon, it doesn't have helicopters and and choirs and um, you know there's no gunshots and televisions and all that marching hammers and stuff, but it's it sounds enormous in the speakers. Um, the the fidelity of that album, I think, and and many of other, many other Pink Floyd records blows away what you hear in terms of the fidelity of the wall and i would say the same thing is true for a lot of the kiss production including the elder which i think sounds massive in terms of fidelity compared to destroyer destroyer sounds thin it sounds small and i know that there's a lot going on there's 800 guitars on every song uh and pianos and flugelhorns and glockenspiels and whatever else and that's you know and it makes the record great but it doesn't to me, it doesn't make it sound big. It ma- it makes it sound compact. I don't know. That is a descending opinion. I think those piano chords in Detroit Rock City are there's, there's just some genius production touches on Destroyer, and it does sound big to me to this day. I, I would agree with that actually. It, well, it's the the arrangement is is massive. The sound is not. I don't know if that makes a. I, I'm not sure. I'm. I don't know if I'm articulating my point. I guess it's just that um, the way it was mixed, right? The the way that the elder plays out of the speakers, I you know it's a, it, you get the rush of adrenaline when that when that moment happens when the piano does those chords in Detroit Rock City. I, and I know what you're talking about. It's just that it doesn't sound big. The highs aren't that high. The 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 lows aren't low enough. It's not. Uh, it doesn't pop out of the speakers. Whereas to me, when I listen to to the elder and the oath starts and the drums come in you know and it just i feel like it just hits me like uh, like a ton of bricks well that song uh, that's hard to that song is almost so separate from the rest of the record it's hard to take that one you know because it does sound big it's a great song but uh, you know only you and you know under the rose those are just even escape Um, from the island these kind of muddy Mr. Blackwell was very, very tiny sounding to, yeah. to my ear. Well, Ezrin uh, tends to, uh, you know, well, I guess there haven't been a lot of producers, Ezrin included, who have allowed the bass to resonate on a Kiss record. And I don't know why that is. I don't know. Maybe there's not a lot of confidence in, in Gene. or, But it's really not just about the bass guitar. It's about the bass frequencies. The bottom end, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. We don't hear much bass in Kiss albums. Well, was Gene even playing bass on the albums? <laughs> what a da, 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 da. I hear a lot of Gene on The Elder, and, and that's something that I think, Joe, you were talking about, is that if, um, you know, if Gene Simmons' solo album can be considered part of that progression, then The Elder isn't such a, you know, such a far cry from it. 
And certainly one of the things that I did like about the Psycho Circus record was that they were willing to take some of the same left turns that they took on Gene's record, on The Elder, even Destroyer. It was, um, you know, it was too convoluted and it was a, a mess in the end. Um, but I don't mind when Kiss take left turns and The Elder is a huge left turn. I want to I wanna actually access Julian your expertise, your sense of, of the history of this band right now, because I want to talk about the context uh, in which The Elder was created. Would you mind just giving a little bit of a, a setup for this? Well, they they always like to blame blame it on Ezrin, that they were ready after Unmasked and all that to go in and make that really hardcore rock and roll album. And I think we've got some <laughs> of the demos from that period, Deadly Weapons and whatnot. I don't know if you've ever covered that on a unmasked oh, yeah. type uh, podcast. So you, you, you've kind of got the the interim period of early 81 that they're ready to rock and they, they're probably writing some rock stuff and I, I guess the story goes that they get together with Ezrin and start playing some of the ideas along and uh, they come up with this crazy concept and it sounded like wow, good idea. And I think a lot of it has to do with the wall and how big it was. Gene would have known what was going on in the music business and uh, how popular that had been. And it had been something that Kiss had not tried. So they come up with this cornball idea and uh, try and weave it into a, weave it into an album, taking bits and pieces. I mean, you've got material going back to pre wicked Lester from Gene being worked into the album. You've got uh, Bob and Paul going off into almost medieval land to try and work stuff out. What's and pre they, what's pre Wicked Lester? Only you? Only you has parts that are that predate. Right. Wow. And I'm assuming when they were in the planning stages, they whether it was not just Gene being grandiose, because when, when they really get behind something and put it out there, you know, this was this was just after the time when Gene would be talking about you know, Kiss World and you know, the Traveling Amusement Park. But they all seem to get behind this as this is going to be a concept record and then we'll have a movie and there'll be a book and all this stuff, right? Well, they all, they all seem to give it 100%, at least those in the decision-making side of the band. You know, Paul and his craft, you know, he went full, full force for it as well. So, uh, you know, you can't. I'm not trying to blame Gene. Right. Well, let, let me ask you this. Uh, two questions, uh, Julian. Um, one is, where in the timeline uh, does Don't Run fit in? And, and for those listening, I'll explain what that is, and we'll, we'll listen to it as well. But, but uh, where does that fit in? Was that something written you know, with the same impetus as Deadly Weapons, or is it something, was that something that was written specifically for The Elder? That probably dates pre-Elder. I mean, look at look at the context and the material in there. It, there's no way that's that's during the elder. Okay, that's, that sounds more like Ace goofing off, really. Well, so "Don't Run" is a demo uh, that became "Dark Light." I don't know if everyone here has heard it, but if not, this is where we're going to listen to it. So here we go.
So that's the song that became Dark Light, and uh, yeah, it's clearly you know a heavier vibe than a lot of the material um, that was on the Elder and the finished product. And I want to talk a little bit about Ace, or really the the sort of the the narrative or the the story about Ace and this record. Now I know that he has said you know many a time that he hates the Elder. He threw it out the window driving in his car. Um, it was a mistake. Yada yada yada. Um, at the time, what was going on? Well, at the time, they started around, what, May 1981, working on this album in New York, so Ace was probably there. He was probably in rehearsals working on the material. Um, I don't know after that whether he went to Toronto with them uh, when they started cutting the album, but he was probably involved, right. and he probably did not like that concept at all and wasn't in the right frame of mind to even be working on anything. So I know he has talked about, um, you know, both, uh, he and Bob Ezrin were enhanced, shall we say, uh, when they recorded, uh, escape from the Island, which is one of, I guess, two big contributions from Ace on the record. The other, of course, being dark light. 
Um, and they're fantastic songs. I mean, there's a lot of rock in those two songs, at least. And the guitar solo for Dark Light is, I think, tremendous. Yeah, that's the high point of the record, I think. Great. You got Classic Ace making a return there. You know, after being sonically neutered on Unmasked, he's letting rip. Yeah. You know, the other thing that you, I think, in terms of, like, where the band was that I think is interesting is this was, you know, they, they had toured Australia and New Zealand in November of the previous year. So there's a lot of time off. I mean, really, the whole of, um, except for recording this record, the whole of 1981, you could claim, you know, they weren't touring and, you know, however hard they worked on this record, this is a band that's used to making records in, you know, five weeks or less. And this one took, what, three, four months to record? You know, they were, you know, th this was a big break for a band that from, you know, 73 to 78 was nonstop on the road or recording. And I think that's that kept the band together. When you have two guys in the band who are, you know, alcoholics, drug addicts, whatever. Forget it being Kiss, any band. The worst thing that can happen is to take a lot of time off and leave those guys to their own devices. Right. And you saw it happen after, you know, in 1978, and then you saw it happen again after the Dynasty Tour. I mean, Peter Chris gone. And this being such a long break in their history, the longest break they'd ever taken between tours and albums, it just, to me, it just seems like it must have been chaos for a band that was used to being workaholics. And in, in, workahol you know, in that workaholic mindset, kept half of the band in line, and thus kept the whole band running. But it just seems like, I can't imagine 1981, they were just off the rails. Right. You know? Well, that's a great point. And James, we've talked about this before. The amount of um, you know, energy that you see in the 1980 footage right when they're on tour for unmasked it's just explosive oh absolutely it's phenomenal i mean that was a band that was <clears throat> reinvigorated by they had a new drummer they were you know somewhere where they were gods again you know they were in australia and europe where really they'd been to europe before but those two markets had really been untapped at that point for the live shows and the, the energy on stage was just out of this world yeah but they're also in a very false position, you know. They look great on stage. They had all that popularity elsewhere, uh, number one hits, or uh, or very good hits with Shandy in uh, markets other than America. But economically, the band were in big trouble. Right. And they absolutely. knew that, and they also knew that they were in very big trouble with their investments, with their declining fan base. You know, everyone was hopping on what other bandwagons are like Judas Priest and Motley Crue starting to emerge those sorts of bands in the early eighties. Right. So so they knew that they they've got they've got uh, some touring possibilities outside of the country, but they don't make a whole lot of money in Europe. They have a great tour in Australia, but I don't know what the economics of that turned out to be. And then they've got to get an album out and they've got problems at the record label. They've got people didn't well, they didn't even tour the U.S. for Unmasked, and now they got to get some product out there and get some press. So they start looking at their ideas. What are they going to do? Are they going to keep the makeup on? That was they discussed that. Are they going to, you know, try and become more superheroes and live normal daily lives where they're no longer hiding from the press um, and let the mystique of the makeup drop? 
and become more of a regular band, or do they do something different like this? So it's a weird time for the band. Well, it's like you know the old saying is if it's if it's not broke, you don't fix it. Well, the problem was is that the formula was broken, and it wasn't working anymore, and they didn't know where to go. They had deviated so far away from the original formula that the hardcores that would have been with them, no matter what, a lot of them had turned away. And the general public, Kiss wasn't cool anymore. You know, they were a 10-year-old band. They weren't the hot new thing. So they really kind of were alienating everybody and trying to find something that could stick. Could it have worked if they had put out the material, you know, something that was maybe, uh, I don't know, halfway between the tracks on Killers and Creatures, you know, something that Ace would be a part of, um, although, you know, he's not really a part of either of those, but something that could have had an ace sound was heavier, was more kind of straightforward kiss, hard rocking. Could they have had a place anymore? They I really, I think they needed a hit single. I think if anything, kiss needed a song to get everybody back on board. And if they could have produced one hit single, I think that things could have turned out very differently. But that was, in my opinion, that's what was needed at the time economically for the band was a hit single. Like if I, if I Love It Loud, if you could back that up to 1981. I think it would have had a better chance. But I don't still know. would have made a difference. Yeah, I don't, know if it, I don't know how much of a difference it would have made, though, because if you think about it, I Was Made For Love and You, massive worldwide hit, but it didn't send Dynasty into the you know, quadruple platinum status. Right. You know, I mean, Kiss was a band that was never built on hit singles to begin with. And um, the only time a hit single ever really saved an album for them was Beth. And that was so, you know, like such a fluke. That was not going to be repeated. And to the question of would a heavier record, like, turn the tide for them, I think no, because they did it the very next year and things were even worse. You know, well, I wonder how much of that owes itself to to the damage that was done with the elder. A, a lot, that's true. Probably a lot. But well, then, things like the elder, and then the, you know, people were still kind of burned by. You had this hard rock band that goes off, and then almost in a lot of people's eyes, I'm sure. Of course, I you know I wasn't even alive at this point, but pompously put out four solo albums on the same day, you know, and then come back with a, a fluff record in a lot of people's eyes in Dynasty. Now I love Dynasty. But in a lot of people's eyes, it was really kind of Kiss, quote unquote, selling out. But were musically. they? But were they solo albums or were they Kiss albums? No, 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 no. I'm not gonna. <laughs> oh, don't go there. Please. <laughs> don't get into that one, please. Okay. I'm, gonna try, I'm not even trying to read actually, that. Example. I would actually argue. I would actually argue too that the Elder is a is a, on the whole, is a pretty heavy record. Uh, you know, half the songs are, you know, they're pretty heavy songs. And maybe the production's not quite there, but I remember, you know, being a kid listening to this, and a song like "Under the Rose" kind of scared the shit out of me. You know, yes, yeah, it was song. so that chorus is so heavy and so dark, uh, very heavy in of, terms of subject matter as well. Yeah. Well, even it, though it was this story, it felt it felt serious. The album feels very serious. Well, I, well that's well to my point being that let's say that. Um, they gained some fans with Dynasty and Unmasked. Really, you know, fans of that music, the sort of more pop rock kind of stuff. This album would have turned those fans off completely. Well, that's it too. I mean, visually, 
I, I think there was also a, um, the elder is the missing piece because you. I don't think you can go from you know Super Kiss nineteen eighty to Creatures of the Night in terms of the visual, the costumes, and the presentation without something in the middle. And you know, for better and worse, that look is the middle look. You know? Yeah, but that middle had a purple hairband. <laughs> how, how, how do you get from ha purple hairband to the creatures look from Super Kiss? It's uh, it's pretty weird. Going back to something James said that uh, he thinks he they needed a hit. I think they needed hit hit rock bottom. You know, and this wow. this whole period is like a reality check for them. You know, when you become successful, you know you're fat and happy, and you stop having to work hard. And they had made that by the end of the '70s. They had been very successful, and they they didn't have to work as hard with uh, impressing seven year old kids who were coming to the concerts, so they had to really realign themselves. And this kind of falls into them trying to re redefine themselves. Let, let, that's a great point. Let me ask a question um, before I follow that point up. W the the four songs that we hear on Killers were they created before the Elder? Nowhere to. W to run apparently was okay. but I wouldn't stake anything on uh, what's been printed you right. know only the band knows for sure but um, you know nowhere to run is one I think that was mentioned very early on okay because here's what I, here's what I would say to, to follow up your point Julian is that you I think that that's a great way of saying it they needed to hit rock bottom and as much as I like I mean I think nowhere to run is a great song I think we would all agree it's a great song but as as much as I like Killers and I like the demos of you know Don't Run and and uh, Deadly Weapons, I don't think that it speaks to the same kind of reinvigoration or the same kind of commitment that you hear on Creatures, right? I mean, that 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 music is good, you know, the Killers stuff is good, but it still sounds a little bit like coasting, you know? It's, oh yeah, the, most of that stuff is paint by numbers, right? And the absence of Ace is is painful in that material as well. Um, but I want to go back to Ace for a second because there was a the interview that he did in two thousand and five or six. I, I don't remember what it was. It was two thousand and five. It was it was the Kissmas show with Ed Trunk. Was an interesting interview in a lot of ways. Very revealing. Very personal. He talked about sobriety for the first time in a very direct kind of way. And and you know this was sort of like the ramp up to him getting back on his feet and anomaly and all that stuff. But he talked about the elder in, you know, using kind of language that he'd never really had before about that record. He was much more even-handed about it. And he talked about it, and the, the quote I remember is he said um, he had ADD, which was ACE Delusional Disorder. <laughs> and, and that the elder wasn't basically, wasn't nearly as bad as he thought it was all those years. And that it maybe wasn't such a mistake. And it was interesting to hear him say that. Have you? Do you guys remember that interview? I do. I don't particularly remember that part, but I remember the interview you're speaking of. Well, the reason why I think about it is because there's another quote from Ace that everyone likes to 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 comment on, which is the musical vasectomy quote. Right after I left Kiss, they got a musical musical vasectomy. Um, and you know, after he left Kiss, they they made some of the arguably some of the heaviest records that they ever made. But I think that the Elder could have been. You know, well, if things hadn't gone the way they, they did, it could have been a way for Ace to continue to be as creative and important in that band because 
Poppy or not, Unmasked had three Ace songs on it. Dynasty had three Ace songs on it. The guy was on a roll. Absolutely. Look at Dark Light or Don't Run, <laughs> how heavy that is. Look at uh, you know Escape from the Island and Heaven, You know the, the full version of that, um, that track. He had riffs. He had you know, the capability to be doing some pretty decent music at that time. Uh, Heaven is one of the instrumentals from that time. Is that right? That's right. That's the, the piece that they butchered and tacked onto the end of Revenge. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, is I don't remember. Is Ace credited in the liner notes for Revenge for that? I don't believe so. Okay. And did he? And the riff is Eric Carr's riff. Is that right? I don't think it is. I think it's Ace's, and it's just the drum solo that's Eric's. Huh. I got. I got to. I got to look back and. I'm trying to remember because I know that Ace and Eric were working together on tracks, and that was one of the tracks that they were working on. I, I want to take a pause here. We can listen to some of the sort of the demo material that came out uh, from those from that period. You know, sort of like 1981, leading up to the Elder. Um, and you know, a lot of this is of varying quality, but you'll recognize bits and pieces of some very familiar things. Certainly, um, you know, you'll hear the beginnings of Just a Boy. You'll hear. Um, what became World Without Heroes. You'll hear some other things that are interesting and different, so give this a listen.
call it before you. Right. Okay, Bob. <coughs> and one, two, one, two, three, go. So there's all the talk about tape reels getting mailed back and forth from Canada to the States, right, to allow Ace to contribute, right? So what did he play on the record, besides the two songs that we all know? You'd have to visit the FAQ and find out. Oh, nice. Good plug. <laughs> I would venture to guess he, he played nothing on any other song except for Dark Light and Escape from the Island. That's my feeling. I would say it's, it's minimal, if anything else, to my ear. I could hear yeah. I could hear that being him maybe on uh, what's it called Under the Rose, but it could also be Paul. And let's talk about Paul's lead guitar for a second because you know we 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 first sort of got a, a, um, a taste of that I guess on Paul's solo album. He had that solo in uh, Hold Me, Touch Me, um, and then I guess we he had a bunch of lead guitar work, some really tasty stuff on on Mast. But I guess it wasn't until The Elder that... Oh, no, and of course, uh, Sure Know Something, another great solo from Paul. But the solo... Well, don't forget, he also, you know, the first part of I Stole Your Love, uh, the first part of um, I Want You. Right. I mean, he's done some solo his day. True, true. Uh, yeah, I mean, Paul's a very underrated lead player, actually, to, to my ear. But... Well, that's the thing. You, you know, the Pink Floyd connection and, and all that we're talking about. When I listen to World Without Heroes... I mean, that, to me, could be a David Gilmour solo. It's just a very, I think, a very powerful, powerful guitar solo on that track. Anyone very, else think so? Very melodic. Yeah. Very, it's, I can definitely see the Gilmour, the Gilmour, um, I don't know if I'd say influence, but styling right. in that uh, solo. Well, there's a difference between every other guitar solo on this record and Ace's solo on Dark Light. Ace's, you know, solo is very much him very free form in its structure it's got a structure as all of his solos do but it's 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 got his personality and it doesn't sound very produced no, all it, the other guitar solos sound very produced like bob ezrin was directing you know like on world without heroes he was, i can imagine going paul try it like this or play this bit or try this you know and, and really you know directing him to do it right right Almost like writing the solo for him. Yeah, exactly. Know? Right. For each of us, I want to talk about the experience of getting the elder or hearing it for the first time. Um, and why don't we start with who? Who got it first? Who got it in 1981? 
Uh, I, I did. I heard it in 1981. Okay. How about uh, you? A friend, of, a friend of mine bought it first. And, I, you know, I, me being all of 11 years old and my taste being as cemented as they were at 11, I actually was co completely confused by the record. And, you know, just listening to I just remember listening to it at my friend's house in his bedroom and just being like, what is this? I just didn't understand and I was looking for anything that was familiar to me, like dark light, familiar, you know, the oath was familiar. Right. I, I was somewhat familiar, you know, in terms of like, okay, that sounds like Kiss. Right. But it took a lot of years for the other songs to just grow on me, just for being the songs that they are, you know, out of the context of this is Kiss. And this is, I mean, I remember hearing Odyssey for the first time in my friend's bedroom, just being like, I, I, I can't believe this is even on a kiss record <laughs> and uh, and now i look back and you know when i hear that song now i i actually i quite like it I and mean, i think paul's vocal is very um overwrought in a lot of places but the song has some power to it and even the guitar solo on that song uh is pretty tasty you very, know very much so yeah i do want to know though if anybody here can answer uh who is tony powers exactly who is that guy that Jill wrote that song and he co-wrote, uh, I think, one other song on the record? Julian? Oh, he he was a famous songwriter, actually. And I can't even I feel bad right now because I can't even remember the full details on, on where he came from. I think he was um, hooked in with the Brill Songwriting Factory. Yeah, uh, he wrote stuff for Phil Spector, for the Crystals. Okay, I see him mentioned here for Ellie Greenwich. Yep. Uh, in, in, on Wikipedia. Um, and of course, she's Brill building. Um, and actually, what we should do is when we talk about um, Odyssey, I'm going to play a bit of his version of Odyssey because it's, it's out there for everyone to hear. Um, you, I think Wik uh, YouTube probably still has the video for it. It's neat. It's good to watch. It's like early concept video stuff. And it's a great song. Kiss record, but it is a very good song. 
It's um, very theatric. Very much so. Did you, Julian, did you hear the record in 1981? No, definitely not. It was uh, 87 or 88, and I couldn't even find it at the time. I just knew that it existed. Finally found a kid in one of my classes, and I had to trade a copy of Van Halen's 5150, <laughs> Def Leppard's On Through the Night, to get the Elder. Nice. And I think, uh, I think with, in the, with the case of 5150, I got the best side of the deal. Um, but I was blinded by the oath. That completely colored my opinion of the album for many years. In a good way. In a good way, yeah. It's, it's only as um, I've applied revisionist history to my musical history uh, that I go back and I'm, I'm not as keen on the album as I was. Okay. I heard it probably um, not terribly long before you did, Julian, and not terribly af long after you did, Joe. Um, I think it was around 1984, and I was on vacation in new england staying in a place that was kind of a little bit medieval like it was a it was a hotel but it was sort of castle-y and i i was already a kiss fan and i got that cassette and i had a, a walkman it was probably the size of, of a laptop um, but i i listened to that tape and of course it started with the oath and then went right into um fanfare and just a boy blah 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 and i loved it from the first time I heard it, and I still love it today, and and that's because, uh, I think, because it, it is kind of such a, a conceptual, medieval, fantasy, sci-fi uh, thing, and I don't mind when Kiss is like that. I like the comic book. You know, I like the, those elements on Destroyer. My first Kiss record was, was Gene's solo album, so I was primed for that right from the get-go, and for me, The Elder fits in magically with that concept I had of what KISS could be about. You know, it wasn't the only thing that they were about, but it, it was something they could be about. And I loved the fact that Ace had that song on there because it, it kind of tied it back to KISS. It meant that it was okay for KISS to take that left turn. Um, and I'd heard, the, I'd heard the song I uh, when it aired on Solid Gold uh, a few years before that. And I was disappointed when it didn't turn up on Creatures of the Night because I didn't know that The Elder was out. It was such a, an invisible album uh -huh. on, on record shelves, you know, that, that um, I bought Creatures expecting I to be on there, and it wasn't. But, um, but yeah, I love The Elder, and I, I loved it then, and I still do now. And James, I guess you're the one who got it last. What did you think? Well, I actually didn't physically get The Elder or listen to The Elder in its entirety until about, honestly, 2005. Wow. Um. You know, like I've I bring back every time we we talk about one of these albums. Again, I was introduced to Kiss through the VH1 version of Extreme Close Up, and in Extreme Close Up, they really kind of, at least on the VH1 version, they don't really talk about the Elder much. It goes straight from, you know, basically the Dynasty period. They kind of skip over Unmasked, and talk about Eric Carr joining the band instead, and they kind of skip over the Elder and talk about Ace leaving the band instead. Right. So all that I had to chew on from the Elder was one clip of World Without Heroes, which is a song that I absolutely adore. One of my top ten Kiss songs. Now, did you have uh, what's it called? You, of course, you did. You had uh, unplugged before you had the Elder, right? Absolutely. Um, I, I got unplugged. A friend of mine who actually got me into Kiss. We both loved that song, and it was, you know, our mission was to find that song, not necessarily to find the record the song was on. If that makes sense. Sure. And the first thing we found with it on there was MTV Unplugged. Right. So that's what I bought instead. And uh, so my 
you know, my exposure to the elder was, was very minimal. Um, I had heard pieces of the oath when I finally watched the, um, the, the VH1 Beyond the Makeup that was a little more in depth and talked a little bit more about the elder. You know, I learned a little more about it, and they didn't really speak about it in a way that made me want to hear it. Yeah. And uh, in, I think it was 2004, I got the uh, DVD Kiss My Ass, which has the, the uh, Studio 54 performance of I on there. Yeah. And I heard that. I was like, you know, that that's all right. And, I mean, the lyrics aren't really what I would expect from them, but that's all right, you know. And so I went and, and bought the album and put it on, and I knew that it was going to be different, so I, was, I wasn't I was really taken aback. Uh, fanfare kind of confused me. I mean, it was – I didn't really understand the concept, so to speak. Well, oh, well, when you got it, actually, now that, now, that, now that we're talking about that, you probably got first the remastered version. Is that right? I – this is a, a a Kiss fan thing that I have to repair, actually. I have never listened to The Elder the way that it was originally released in the U.S. Wow. The Elder is always – the only Elder I've ever had has been the remaster. Right. And so I guess – you've, you've never had to endure the finale then? No. I've, I've actually never heard the finale. Oh, my well, God. Well, wait, 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 wait. Well, it, that's, no, that's on, on the there. end of it's, I, it's right? On, yeah, it's, it's on at the end of I. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's it's the same. It's at the end of the I track. Oh, okay. It's just one track on the on the new one. Oh, I see. I gotcha. I gotcha. But so I've always listened to it fan fanfare through I, is how it's always been, for when I've heard it. You know, so that's one thing that actually I'm going to have to I think rectify one day. It's just, you know, screw with the order a little bit and see what I think. I'd like to know who sat down when they did the reissue and said, "This is how it should really be." I mean, did, you know, was it Gene Simmons? Was it somebody at at uh, Mercury, you know, like who sat there and said, "We need to move these around, and then this album will be what it's supposed to be." Well, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think the way that it was re-released was the original album track listing to begin with. That and was that the it was intended actually, track order. Yeah, it was rearranged when they they put it out. That I, I think, from what I've always understood, mostly to, to put the oath at the beginning to give it a, a rocker to start the album out. Right, mm-hmm. like the record company wouldn't allow. Um, wouldn't allow it to hit the shelves in 1981 uh, the way it was intended to be, which is what we hear now on the on the remaster. I guess there was supposed to be more of that, though. Is that right? There was like the more dialogue and what, what's the story with the double album? Right? There's this kind of thing that the Elder was going to be uh, a double record, right, Julian? Yeah, and then they'd go into the Elder Two. It'd be War of the Gods or something. I don't know. Right. Oh. And a movie, of course. You know. Yeah, I, if you think about the dialogue you get at the end of the album, I guess we're fortunate that they did not put more of that on the album. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would have been an Academy Award. Um, or, All that's missing is some dancing elves for fanfare. Oh god! <laughs> well, so. when you take when you take things at face value, you know, when I you know being at, at eleven years old, which I was, and you see the album title, "Music from the Elder," and you know, it's so funny because. I, by that time, I'd been a Kiss fan for four years, maybe three, four years, and I was used to really, you know, keeping up with the band not just through the records, but through things like Sixteen magazine, Grooves magazine, um, you know, the, basically the teen magazines that they were a part of in the late seventies. And the Elder was such a subdued PR campaign. It, you know, it wasn't until years later that you, you get that famous bootleg compilation, you know, VHS tape with all the elder uh, PR on it, you know, oh, yeah. 
the Flo and Eddie show, Solid Gold, the Casey Kasem show, you know, all that stuff. But at the time, I saw nothing. Blink and you miss it. And 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 let's face it, like nothing against Flo and Eddie, but I don't think people were watching that show in droves, right? I think it was a New York local show, so probably not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I saw nothing. There were no magazine articles. I mean, they were really they, whether it was by design or just their 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 popularity, were really that low. But not even the magazines that were just fluff magazines even carried a cursory press release. There was even. there was one, I think, and I don't remember what magazine it was. I have it somewhere. It was like sixteen or one of those, and that had like um, you know unveiling Kiss's new look. And God, you know, God love them. They did try. It was like, you know, the hot new look for, for Kiss, like short hair, exclamation point, you know, um, headband, purple, exclamation point. You know, I don't know what they said, but, you know, they did try. Yeah, they looked like they just came from an Olivia Newton-John video. <laughs> well, that was the terrible about the record itself. And, you know, it's you could call it artistic, whatever, but the packaging of the record did not help at all the hand on the cover the table and chairs in the in the fold out and on the version that i saw that my friend got because i didn't get it till a few years later it had a, a kind of transparent sleeve inside that did not have the lyrics had nothing really uh and it just it looked cheap to me when i was used to kiss records that had fairly elaborate art or if not that, posters and you know catalogs of things enough to really give you a sense of where the band was at that moment, at least their look, you know. Well, and this had nothing. I, I just thought this is just what is this? It's just well, right. I mean, Alive had the the booklet, which was awesome, you know. And then you, you know, then the Alive two, the gatefold speaks for itself. The the solo albums had those great posters that all went together, you know. I mean, even Kiss Unmasked, which you know. We could de de debate the merits of the album cover, but it certainly was, uh, you know, like some effort was put into it. And then you go from the gatefold of Alive to a big oak table. Yeah. I mean, that, that did nothing for me. Now, granted, they were certainly not trying to appeal to me, the 11-year-old Kiss fan, but that really didn't appeal to me because it, it, it wasn't enough to spark my imagination. I mean, it wasn't even... It didn't even have enough of a sort of gothic feel to it that you you know even if you're into comic books and even that side the fantasy side of Kiss, it, there just wasn't enough there to get you excited, you know. Well, th there was and there wasn't. I would say you know, and I'm a big Gene fan, so you know here we go. Um, I would say that when it was Gene, it worked. When it was Ace, it kind of worked too. I would say that when it was Paul, it sounded a little funny. And that's nothing against Paul. He delivered 110%. The songwriting is great. His performances are unbelievable. And his guitar playing is wonderful. But, but I would say that for a lot of the same reasons that I feel that his material on Carnival of Souls is a little wonky, uh, on The Elder, too, it's just something about Just a Boy and, you know, and that stuff that I think it's just, it doesn't feel medieval. It just feels... I don't know what. Well, let me say this. I i don't know if everybody, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that everybody's seen, you can see it on YouTube, that snippet of the Australian convention tour where Paul tries to play Just a Boy and he gets through maybe, he barely gets through the first 
verse. And the audience is singing with him. But when he really starts it, and he kind of has a handle on it at first, it's a pretty good song. Oh, it is. So let's go through the album, and why don't we go through, and, and I guess we'll do the order of the remasters. So you blinked, and we missed Fanfare. <laughs> right, right, right. Who... Fanfare, Fanfare does have the ability to uh, scare the piss out of me every time I listen to this album. <laughs> when, it, when it gets loud, because I, I listen to my music at a fairly high level, when it gets loud... It, it will scare the piss out of me every single time. Never fails. It's just a little snippet for you there. So that and uh, the the start of the Gene solo record. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was anyone? Uh, I mean, did anyone have an eye roll reaction to Fanfare? I mean, I just sort of took it at face value and I liked it for what it was. But for whom was it an eye roll? I think it was for me. I had it open the record, it would have been even worse. I I would have not really known how to process it yeah okay it doesn't bother me it doesn't do anything for me and it doesn't detract from the album it, it's just there it's just a minute of blah it's yeah. what it's what you have to wait through to get to kiss well i, I can't imagine i mean i can't believe it took paul stanley and bob ezrin to write it <laughs> <laughs> right like that's a lot of a talent in one room for for that piece of music. Yeah, right? yeah, right. Um, so you know, then you get "Just a Boy," which you know I think is a good song, and you know it's it's a little heavy-handed, a little silly, um, but nice guitar work on it, though. It's good guitar work. I think uh, one thing. I mean, as obviously Paul Stanley, you know, he is the the best singer in the band and always was, but the one thing that he that never he can never sell to me is his falsetto. Absolutely not. I agree a hundred percent. Really, I I can't get enough. I can't get enough. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's terrible. I won't do that. Um, I think it's a great lyrical idea that's ruined by the singing. It's Paul has such a great voice, such a, a great range. Anyway, that when he does the falsetto in Just a Boy and a couple of other tracks on this album, it just it feels forced. It feels almost, it feels fake to me. It feels like he's singing. It's kind of how you mentioned with this Carnival of Souls material. The, the big, the big reason why it always seems odd to me is because it just feels fake. Well, when Paul Stanley sings about churches raping the needy, you know, it, it, it yeah, it, something about it doesn't quite fly. I mean, especially in Just a Boy, where it's so out there. I mean, there's there's nothing really underneath it musically. I mean, in the Oath. The course of the oath, he he gets away with it because the 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 music is so heavy underneath it. So you have that juxtaposition. But when it's just that falsetto is just hanging out there, yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness, it's it, that is probably the most cringeworthy moment on the whole record to me. Just a boy, and my future is unveiling. 
boy, I'm being awfully negative here about a record that I do love, but as long as we're going there, I think the cringeworthy moment tie is between that and the, um, the, the there's a child in a sundress thing. You know what I'm talking about? In, in uh, There's a child in a sundress looking... Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's a tie. Um, that's, that's, yeah. To get serious for a second, though, I guess... Um, and we, you know, for those who haven't listened to, um, I guess podcast number 40 is the one that we had Loretta Caravello on talking about the late great Eric Carr, um, talking about her brother and talking about, uh, you know, him first joining Kiss and, and making this record and everything. She, she touched on all these topics. Um, does anyone, does anyone think of this sort of the boy, that character as having been Eric Carr? <laughs> I had never had. <laughs> no. no, I think the boy is Gene Simmons. Really? You know, it's so comic book. It's so kind of, it speaks to me more of him as the, you know, the immigrant little boy, you know, can I shine your shoes, sir, and all that, you know, going up against the evil, you know, well, I guess the evil characters at the beginning were evil corporate type characters, not uh, all fantasy as it later turned into early drafts were a lot more just kind of standard uh, business characters. So uh, that's why I always thought of it more as Gene. No, that makes sense. Or, or, I mean, you know, by extension, I mean, you could also say maybe the Nazis, right? His, his mom's experience. And I guess we would have to have Ross on the show to elaborate on that. We should have him on at some point, but, um, But, you know, I could see that. I, I get that. I guess the reason why I, I, I think of it like that is, isn't there a chapter in Gene's book uh, when it gets to talking about Eric joining and making the elder? It's The name of the chapter is something like, you know, the, the boy meets the elder or something like that, you know, and it's, um, and I know that even uh, Eric's sister said that Gene really took an immediate uh, liking to Eric and that there was kind of a like a big brother little brother relationship um, you know and I'm, I'm inclined to wonder you know if they, were, they weren't trying to build that character or build a, a place for him in that in that story but you know we, we may never know and I'm sure if I'm sure if we asked I think him it's, it's more it seems more like I just picture Eric Carr being like, okay, now I, you know, I've toured with the band, I've, I got my character, and now right. I get to record with the band, and it's this stuff, and he's just like, what in the hell has happened? You know, and his sense of timing, he just must have felt like, oh my god, yeah, you know, and could say nothing, and could say nothing. Well, let me do what I do every time we do a, a, a podcast, or at least every time we do a roundtable, and I'm going to reach over and I'm going to grab the Kiss Alive Forever book because in this in this book where they talk about the Elder, and of course it's not a very big chapter. In a postcard, Gene notes, quote, understand that this is a time of readjustment for us, and we're not sure yet how we'll do or even how we'll look. Bear with us until we figure it out. Right? And so, yeah, I mean, Eric came in and basically just, you know, took a position in a band that was maintaining the look they'd had the previous year. A lot of the sound was carried over um the album was was and wasn't a hit um and then this happens right just a complete step into left field but i was also under the impression and i don't know if other people have heard this rumor that they were going to change the makeup that that they had plans to change the makeup itself had anyone heard that rumor 
Oh I think God, that, that no. might be a little bit mixed up. With, you know, years ago, Loretta had a whole bunch of uh, memos and stuff online about this era. And they actually had some of the discussions. I wish I'd saved them because they, they did talk about uh, changing the whole image of the band. What kind of so. stuff were they? Do you remember what they were talking about? Uh, it, it, it's so vague. I mean, street clothes rather than costumes, I, I think, was one thing. Um, and again, I I think, as I said earlier, you know, not wearing the makeup. Okay. Would you, would, would there have been a time that you guys looked at each other and said, Hey, let's make this album of just pure music and let's just toss this stuff off and see if we can't just make this record. Okay. Can you imagine going up to Superman and saying, why don't you get rid of that ass and the cape and stuff? Don't show the cigar doesn't work. That's right. I mean, it just makes you look special. Why don't you take it off and be ordinary like everybody else? No. I think also if the album is supposed to be so musical and that's what people are telling us for us to drop the makeup now would be like, well, we're coming out from behind the makeup and we're doing real oh, they'd really yeah. jump on you then, right? I, we, we don't want to make any excuses for what we do and we don't owe no. people explanations. We still look like this and we'll play whatever we want to play. No, that's great. Alright, so moving on to let's see, where do we go? On the on the remaster we go from that to Odyssey. Right. And I'm not really sure how to follow or if one is supposed to follow a storyline. Right? Does anyone listen to this record and hear a storyline or not really? Not in particularly. There's, I mean, come on. There is nothing coherent about the story that they thought they were telling at all, except for your basic um, uh, Joseph Campbell hero's journey. I mean, uh, right. Which is what you know, which is pretty, which is any, you know, exactly what Gene would have come up with. Um, yeah. And nothing with any real kind of originality or twist to it. Just. The kid, you know, meets the elders and finds his power and he goes through a crisis and he's ready to rock at the end of it or whatever, you know. Heavy-handed, meat and potatoes, kiss version of, like you said, Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Right. Who likes the original flow better than the remastered flow? I think the original has has more of a flow, storytelling-wise, to me. But maybe that's just because that's what I'm used to. But I, I really feel like that tells... A better story than the remaster, you know. Yeah, I, I do too. Julian, I think the remaster. Well, I, I I always consider the remaster the original one because that's how it was kind of intended to be released. So I right. think the remaster flows. It, each song is kind of sequential. You you start off with just a boy, okay? He's the kid who's scared and all this, whatever, you know. Then you go into Odyssey and you know, okay, there's something out there that's bigger than me. And then it, it's way more sequential with Odyssey. You know, uh, let's talk about Alan Schwartzberg. Oh right, replacing okay. uh, Eric on drums. Right. So this a tradition that started with Destroyer. Um, and, and certainly happens, at least to my knowledge, on every Bob Ezrin album, even Pink Floyd The Wall, uh, you know, is the replacement of band members with session players. Well, basically, the story is that uh, Bob didn't feel that Eric was copying the feel for, the, for two songs on the album, one which we'll talk about later, I guess, um, and had him do the work for Odyssey. Uh, another interesting story with this song is that uh, Gene had apparently wanted to sing it as well, um, and Paul only got to sing it at the last moment. So that's a couple of uh, interesting 
sound bites about the song. I didn't know that. Wow. Okay. Okay. And, he, and you mean sing it in addition to Paul or sing it just on his own? Sing it instead of Paul. Wow. Okay. The thing about Odyssey that's always stood out, stood out to me for some reason is uh, if I ever want to know how Paul Stanley would cover an Elvis Presley song, I really think it would be close to how Odyssey sounds. <laughs> okay. That part, really you're do. talking about that part that goes uh, on a mountain high somewhere. Absolutely. In the ghetto. You can really tell that it's not Eric Parr. I mean, there's, it's really, that. that's why the, this song, in a way, not just because it's the one song on the record that none of them had any hand in writing, but the, the, the playing on it and Paul singing, it just doesn't, it's it's the most it to me when they say you know when Paul says it's a good record not a good Kiss record I just always feel like he's just talking about this song right because it just doesn't sound like anything else on this record it just sounds so out of place and I just am wondering if they thought this was the Beth of this record potentially if there was going to be a way to, you know, like put out more than one single that they thought that they might have a, another Beth with this song if they had, you know, they lay in one, two singles and they ha get some traction, then they like blow this one out and the record just goes like to the stratosphere. I just wonder if that was their thinking at all. I mean, it's hard to imagine, you know, I, I could see that, but, you know, World Without Heroes was pitched as the single and and certainly that got a lot of attention if anything did right um but I guess it's so hard to imagine that paul or anyone would have been thinking that that would that would work i guess maybe uh, maybe i'm wrong actually after i was made for loving you and shandy maybe it isn't so hard to imagine he he was he was on a winning streak but you know it it seems like it was such a it would have been such a gamble like they you know how much can we possibly alienate our core fan base well here's the other uh possibility that's completely likely is that it was just simply a song that bob ezrin forced onto the record forced it on the the band and said this is a great song and we're, this it goes with what we're doing and we're going to do it i mean he he certainly had that power. Well, he did that it, with King of the Nighttime World, but except that that was awesome. <laughs> yes. But I mean, as a producer, he was certainly a powerful producer, and and we know that uh, at, up until that time, at least, you know, Paul and Gene would acquiesce to the producer they were working with, whether it was Eddie Kramer or Bob Ezrin or the, you know, Kerner and Wise at the beginning. I mean, they, they gave the producer of their records a, a, an amount of power even as they got famous. And truth be told, that was probably an industry standard, particularly yeah. at that time, right? Because that yeah. is the job of a producer. Yeah. You know? Um, I mean, I think it's only once you get as massive in, in size, scope, success, and, and ego as a band like Kiss that you start to tell the producer what, what they're doing. But, you know, I mean, the producer's job is to decide what goes on the record and, and how it goes on the record. And I think what happened ultimately is that you, you know, aside from budget concerns, that from Dynasty through the Elder, I think they felt burned by producers, ultimately. And that's why they started producing themselves. But I think also, I, I have a feeling that Bob Ezrin got paid very well to produce the Elder. And, you know, and probably had, 
probably to his chagrin had a probably healthy back end participation on that record, which added up to nothing. Right. But, you know, I'm sure he negotiated a very good deal for himself on that record coming off the wall. Uh, you just can imagine how expensive he was to oh, work. With. I, I can only imagine, but but I'm sure coming off the wall, anything felt pretty good and like a big relief because that, you know, that was an emotional minefield for everyone involved. But that's a that's a different podcast. <laughs>